Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. This is George. Patrick and I appreciate your joining with us once again. This week, we have a news and research week, and our news is primarily focused on the London Marathon. But here's the deal. For a variety of reasons, which we're actually going to talk about during the podcast, Patrick and I got together just this past Tuesday to record this edition of the podcast about the London Marathon and, and also some research as well. Um, and at the time, I really felt like we were in front of the news. Uh, looking around the potosphere, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of people who had talked about the London Marathon just yet. And so I felt like a lot of our reflections were fresh and, and were original. Um, but then over the course of the ensuing 24 hours, two big pieces of news ended up hitting the, the wires uh, that we didn't get the opportunity to talk about during this podcast. And so I did want to mention, make sure I mentioned those here at the outset here during the introduction. The first one, has to do with a topic we've talked about before, and that's Castor Semenya. Castor Semenya, recall, is the South African 800-meter runner um, who has been under scrutiny for pretty much the bulk of her career um, because she has hyperandrogenism. In other words, she has naturally elevated testosterone levels. And just last year, the IAAF passed a rule in which they said that people who like Castor Semenya had naturally occurring very high levels of testosterone, had to take drugs to lower those levels of testosterone into what's considered to be a normal range for female competitors. Um, Castor Semenya disputed that, and she took it to the highest court for sport, called the Court for Arbitration of Sport. Uh, and she appeared in front of a three-judge panel along with her lawyers, and the IAAF, the governing body for track and field internationally, um, also had a bunch of expert witnesses and their lawyers. Uh, and just this week on Wednesday, the Court for Arbitration of Sport uh, released their ruling, and in a two-to-one ruling, they had three judges ruling on it, they ruled in favor of the IAAF, and they said that Castor Semenya is not allowed to compete as a woman unless she wants to uh, lower her testosterone into acceptable levels for female competition. Now, um, that means basically she has a couple of different options here moving forward. The first option is, of course, to to artificially lower her testosterone. And she actually said, hell no, I'm not going to do that. That was an actual direct quotation. Uh, another one is that she could actually move up in distance. Um, the regulations are actually targeted for 400 meters to 1500 meters. Now, she's an 800 meter runner. And essentially, the science that they have pointed to, which, by the way, the Court for Arbitration of Sport mentioned that the science they felt was a little bit dodgy. Um, the science points to advantages solely for runners there in that 400 meters to 1500 meters window, which conveniently Cassius Semenya tends to fit into. Um, and so uh, she can move up to 5,000 meters. Um, she's run some 5,000 meter races before. Uh, she's not nearly as dominant in the 5,000 meters as she's in 800 meters. So it remains to be seen though she's going to do that. Um, the third thing she could do is compete as a male. Um, and that's probably not likely to happen either. Uh, and the fourth thing she could do, and I, I think this is actually is a possibility, and we'll see whether she does, is that she could just flat out defy the IAAF and she could sign up for a meet and she could run 
at her current levels um, and essentially dare them to 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 suspend her. We'll see whether that happens or not. Um, the ban went into effect um, this week or this coming week. It's going to be going into effect. And so just yesterday on Saturday, she ran an 800-meter race in Doha. It was her 30th consecutive win. She ran 154.98 and uh, ran the eighth fastest time of all time for 800 meters for a woman. And it was actually her third fastest of all time as well. So um, Patrick and I are going to dive into this a little bit more deeply in a couple of weeks. We'll talk about some of our takeaways, some of our analysis, all that sort of thing. Um, But I did want to let you know about this because we've talked about this on the podcast before. uh, And then there was obviously a very important development of this um, over the course of, of the past few days. The second thing, um, in the podcast coming up, when we're talking about the London Marathon, we're going to be talking about the Vaporflies, because we can't seem to talk enough about the Vaporflies. We're also going to be talking about Elliot Kipchoge, because we can't seem to talk enough about Elliot Kipchoge. But uh, the day after we recorded the podcast, again, on Wednesday, uh, Hoka One One announced that they have a new carbon-plated shoe that they have released. Um, it's called the Carbon X, and it's actually not going to be a competitor to the new Vaporfly Next Percent shoe, uh, which is the second generation of the Vaporfly 4%, which we did an entire podcast on last year. But rather, the Carbon X has foam, it has a carbon plate, but it's intended to be like a lightweight trainer um, that you can use for tempo runs or you can use it for longer races if you choose to. And when they announced this shoe on Wednesday, they also announced that just yesterday, uh, on Saturday, Jim Walmsley and uh, Hideki Yamauchi and a few other ultra runners who are sponsored by Hoka One One were going to be wearing this shoe in a test event, effectively. And they were going to be trying to break the 50-mile world best um, and the 100-kilometer world record um, on a course in California. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about this when the time comes again uh, in a couple of weeks when we have another news and research podcast. But to go ahead and spoil it for you, uh, Jim Walmsley did end up beating the world best for 50 miles. However, he spent himself very much in doing it and basically jogged the remaining 12 miles. Um, Hideki Yamauchi, the Japanese ultra runner, uh, ended up passing and almost lapping on the four-mile four course, uh, uh, Jim Walmsley after that. But uh, congrats to Jim Walmsley wearing those new Carbon X uh, lightweight trainer shoes um, uh, that Hoka One One has, has put out uh, for breaking that 50-mile world best. Um, the third thing has to do with Elliot Kipchoge, and we're going to talk here in the podcast about Elliot Kipchoge and what's next for him. Um, well, he announced just today, as a matter of fact, on Sunday, what is next for him, um, and he has announced a joint venture with some of the organizers of the uh, London Marathon and with Enios, which is a petroleum company, a British petroleum company, um, who recently took over sponsorship of Team Sky, the cycling team uh, that's been so successful in Grand Tours over the course of the past few years. Um, They announced that they're going to be sponsoring him and trying to set up a one-off event in October of this year. And the goal is going to be to try and get Elliot Kipchoge under that two-hour mark. Now, if it sounds like the Breaking 2 project, it's very similar to the Breaking 2 project, except that it's going to actually have... Uh, the rules in place such that if he breaks two hours, um, it will count. 
Um, you'll recall the Breaking 2 project from Nike. It used Pacers in such a way that that it wasn't actually able to be ratified as a record, even though Elliot Kipchoge ran two hours flat and 25 seconds. Um, and so talking about it there, Elliot Kipchoge actually said, it's not about the IAAF, it's about history. I want to leave a big legacy. So looks like that's going to be next on Elliot Kipchoge's list. We talk a little bit about what he wants to do next here in the podcast. Alas, I would be out of date if I didn't mention that here in the introduction. So long introduction here. Did want to make you aware of those three stories here. Like I said, we recorded this on Tuesday. We're releasing it on Sunday. It was a busy week. Um, and so we wanted to catch you up before we did. But without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into the podcast here at News and Research Week on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in the Atlanta area. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. Patrick is back in the studio. And of course, by studio, I mean my house. Welcome back, man. Good to be back. It's been a little while. <laughs> it has. I mean, traveling to, to, to Boston and then we we were both, or at least I was out of town last weekend, so... Yeah, yeah. It's been kind of a, an odd month in April when you're tapering mm-hmm. and then recovering from the marathon. I think most marathon runners and Ironmen can, you know, relate to that feeling of you know training, 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 and then all of a sudden you just have a month where you have one race and that's about it. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny too because you see, like you know, you and I run together a lot, and so so I get accustomed to seeing you and running with you, and then your taper comes along and so i'm running more than you are or our schedules don't really match or you're prioritizing sleeping over getting up first thing in the morning or something like that and then you actually go to your race and then you're recovering from your race and so you get accustomed to seeing somebody and spending a whole lot of time with them you know hours on end uh two you know one or two times a week and then you don't see them for three weeks so yeah been missing you man yeah along those same lines (laughs) i literally had the epiphany this weekend that you were running a race here next weekend so i am i am so on the on the day that this comes out in fact by the time this comes out i will have hopefully successfully completed my uh my spring marathon so you know we're gonna release this about 12 hours after you start so let's certainly (laughs) hope you're done by then let's hope so we'll see we'll see very good yeah there's 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 a seven hour time limit for the flying pig marathon so yeah if it takes me 12 hours i'm gonna be spending a lot of time on the sidewalks um i want to mention something uh real quick from our last podcast um you know you and i both patrick we know the difference but we we both misspoke a lot when we were talking about the boston marathon and i wanted to make sure that everybody was clear on this not clear that we know what we're talking about but clear on the difference between an olympic qualifying time and olympic trials qualifying time because uh, yes. did, I mean, I don't know if you noticed it when you listened to when we were talking about Boston. I definitely noticed it when we did. Um, and it's important to kind of make sure that that's clear. Um, for men, in order to qualify for the Olympic trials, in other words, in order to be able to run the race on February 29th of 2020, that would qualify you for the Olympics, asterisk, we'll come back to that, that would qualify you for the Olympic team, um, you have to have run under 219 or a 104 half marathon, 104 flat half marathon. Um, for women, you have to run a 245 marathon or I don't actually know what the time is for, for half marathon. I think it's like 118 maybe, something like that. Um, but anyway, um, um, and so that will get you on the starting line in Atlanta on February 29th of 2020. However, as we talked about a couple of episodes ago, even if you 
have made the Olympic trials. And even right now, if you finish in the top three of the Olympic trials, you're not necessarily going to get to go to the Olympics because you also have to qualify for the Olympics. And the Olympics have their own qualifying times too. Mm -hmm. And so for the men, the Olympic qualifying time is 2.11.30. For the women, it's 2.29.30. And so you have to do well at the Olympic trials here in Atlanta and you have to have that qualifying time too. And so that means if somebody who hasn't run 211.30, say a man hasn't run under 211.30, they go out and they win the trials in 213, which is a very likely winning time here on our difficult trials course, um, they won't actually get to represent the United States in the Olympics in 2020. So kind of a big deal. Um, we were talking about it last week when we talked about Scott Fobble and Jared Ward. They both now have Olympic qualifying times. They already had Olympic trials qualifying times, but now if they finish in the top three at the Olympic marathon trials here in Atlanta, they will be able to represent the United States at the Olympic Games in Tokyo in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of women have have the Olympic trials qualifying time. Lots of women have under 229.30. Not as many men in the United States have under 211.30. So, um, right. If, if that changed a little bit, we'll kind of keep you posted on that, but we did want to make sure that we, we distinguished here. At least I wanted to make sure we distinguish here at the outset, the difference between Olympic qualifying and Olympic trials qualifying. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when we're talking fast and getting excited, we might drop trials out of that and it might sound like we're confusing them. Let's not get them confused. Um, but speaking of Olympic qualifying, Olympic trials qualifying big race this past weekend, mm-hmm. London marathon. Um, did you get up and watch? I did. Yeah. About 3 a.m., the uh, alarm clock went off. Did I, you set an alarm I, for 3 a.m.? Yeah, and I, I remember thinking Says to myself... Says the guy who's in recovery from his marathon. <laughs> well, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I bet there are college students that haven't gone to sleep yet. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> uh, many, many college students who haven't gone to sleep. Yeah, Says I, the college professor. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I always joke that whenever you go for a run in the 4 a.m. hour, that's always the weirdest hour to run in. The 5 a.m. hour, if you go for a run then, most people who are up are getting up. If you go for, for a run in the 4 a.m. hour, there's a mix. <laughs> you know, there's like bartenders coming home from work um, at, at, during the 4 a.m. hour, and you're starting your day and you're getting up and running. It's it's weird. Um, but so, yeah, certainly when you got up at 3, man, yeah, there are still play, people that were just getting warmed up. <laughs> yeah. So what would you think? Uh, I just thought it was super exciting. I mean, in, in a way, there was not... Um, you know, the the final result for the men especially were was not unexpected with Eli Kipchoge, of course, emerging as the victor while mm-hmm. wearing Nike Vapor Flies. Oh yeah, we'll talk about both those things. Um, but I, I would say the most incredible thing about that race that I saw was a human being ran a two o two and finished second. Yeah, yeah, ran two o two fifty five, which would have been the world record this time last year. Yes. Yeah. So, so a guy broke what, or set what would have been the world record last year, and and ran the third fastest time in history, and he was second place in the race, um, and and was soundly second place. I mean, he was beaten by 18 seconds, which is you know not a huge margin, but as soon as Elliot Kipchoge ran away from him in that last two kilometers, it was never really in doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, incredible. Absolutely. 
Um, yeah, so as Patrick said there, Elliot Kipchoge uh, won, uh, ran 202.37. It was a course record at the London Marathon. It was his fourth straight victory in London. He becomes the first person ever to win four straight London Marathon victories. And it was the second fastest time of all time. Um, yeah. So the only time that was ever faster or, or the only person who's ever run faster in that time is Elliot Kipchoge himself when he ran 201.39 uh, last year in Berlin, of course. Uh, so course record, second fastest of all time. Third place, or second place, as you said, Mosinet Garamu uh, runs 202.55, the third fastest time in history, would have broken the old world record, but finished second in the race. Um, incredible. And then third place was a guy named uh, Mule Wasahun. Um, Mule Wasahun runs 203.16, um, which is the fastest ever third place time by nearly a minute. Um, to run 203.16, which is... I mean, just smoking fast. Yeah. Um, and, That'll and be a course third. record at most major marathons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and he's third. Third place. Um, other notable finish there, you had uh, Sir Mo Farah uh, finished in 205.39. Um, you know, one of the things I was reading when I was talking about the race, it said, you know, this shows you how incredibly fast the marathon was, that Mo Farah, multiple-time world champion and Olympic champion, finishes in 205.39 and is sort of an also-ran in the race. Mm-hmm. Um, is never really a factor. Um, and that's a good point. Um, kind of breaking it down for you a little bit. There was nine men plus the Pacers went through halfway in 6137. Um, yeah. So the Pacers <laughs> would have qualified for the Olympic trials. Oh, yeah. Easily. Based on that half pace. Yeah, easily. They would have qualified for the Olympic trials in the United States by, by two and a half minutes. The chase pack. So, so, so not even the leading Pacers, but the chase pack, the second group, went through halfway at 6320. So they would have qualified for for uh, the Olympic trials in the United States as well. Uh, but anyway, uh, Chase back runs six three twenty. Kick Choby ended up taking the lead after the Pacers dropped off right at the halfway mark and literally never relinquished the lead. Mm-hmm. He was never not in the lead for the remainder of the race. And so there was there was pretty much nobody ever in front of him for the entire race except for the Pacers. Um, and then, as you might guess, as soon as he took over the lead, he actually picked up the pace. Um, so, kind of side note there, I didn't know if you picked up on this or if this was just my imagination, but he almost seemed to be annoyed yeah. by the Pacers, like almost like yeah. they were holding him back, yeah. like he was a dog on a leash, oh, and yeah. then the minute they dropped off, he's like, all right, now it's time to yeah. get after it. Oh, it totally, it was like he was set free, and so his 14th mile was 432, 15th mile was 434, 16th mile was 434, 17th mile was 432, 18th mile was 439, I mean, just throwing down. Um, yeah, incredible here. Runs, you know, a little bit over 23 minutes there for the next five miles. Um, now, we talk all the time on this podcast about negative splitting a marathon <laughs> and about how you shouldn't worry about going out too slow because if you're in good enough shape, you can make up some time at the end if you're in that good of shape. Yeah. That is negative splitting. <laughs> well, and we're going to talk about that even more when it comes to the women's race here in just a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the women's race literally said a, a fastest – back half ever but we're talking about that in just a minute um anyway so w- with him kind of just just completely blowing everybody out like i said nobody else wanted to take the lead nobody did take the lead um he actually between between about that point around 17 18 miles he was turning around and he was waving to the people behind him did you see that he was mm-hmm. like he was like waving with his left arm waving with his right arm um and it was unclear I, I i talked to one person who had also gotten up to watch it and she said that she felt like he was annoyed um that that nobody else wanted to take the lead um the people on let's run seem to suggest that no he's not annoyed he was 
just kind of putting the word out there like, hey, anybody wants to run fast, you got to go with me now. You better come on. You know, that kind of thing. Um, one way or another, he's waving his arms and, and a small group of people stay with him. Uh, eventually, those top three guys plus Shura Katata end up making it to mile 24. Uh, Katata is the guy that we talked about a little bit last week who uh, just barely, barely got out kicked by Lisa DeCisa last year in New York. Um, Katata was shed at mile 24. And then Kipchoge somehow... Inexplic- not inexplicably, because he's the greatest marathon of all time, but but amazingly runs a 426 for mile 25. Honest question. Could you run a 426 no. mile oh, no. downhill or on the track right now? Okay. No. Yeah, no. Of course not. Why do I even pause? <laughs> I, I paused when you said downhill. I was like, no, of course. I still couldn't. No. Um, yeah, he throws down such fast times and then and then still has people around him at mile 24 and so he just tosses in a 426 for mile 25 game over yeah um yeah now the same person i was talking to that said that he was annoyed before swore that he looked at the camera and winked when he threw down that 426 I don't know about that. <laughs> did you did you happen to notice him winking at the camera? As I he's didn't catch it, but you know what? I'll give him credit for that. It's right. a little bit like we don't know if Babe Ruth actually pointed to the right. outfield fence before hitting a home run, but you know what? Let's just go with it. Let's yeah, let the go. myth go with it. take over. Go with it. That's part of the fun of sports. Right, right. Game over. 202-37, course record, second fast of all time. Tenth straight victory. Um, he's won 11 of the 12 marathons that he's run. Uh, that includes several world marathon majors, includes the world record, includes the Olympic marathon in 2016 um, and the guy is 34 years old and is show, showing no signs of slowing down here um, just incredible amazing um, yeah, and you actually kind of hit on a good point too so one little theme here that we've seen in other sports is how players are, or athletes are playing much longer than they used yeah. to uh, like in the NBA, I know there there have been several articles where they wrote something like forty is the new thirty. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that with NFL quarterbacks, but yeah. that's that's a whole different idea because that's like I mean they're outlawing some right. of the collisions they used to have to go through. Right. But like you see it a lot in basketball where the game really hasn't changed that much, but they're just able to take care of their body more yeah. so than yeah. like Wilt Chamberlain who was literally smoking cigarettes and playing in Converse's and hooking up with twenty thousand women. Well, yeah, that too. Um, <laughs> but you know. We're just kind of seeing a lot of athletes bust the aging curve mm-hmm. to where these projection models that are saying, all right, like Bakota and baseball, mm-hmm. your home run should start dipping at this age. Your mm-hmm. batting average should start dipping at this age. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we're going to see, but we're not seeing that same curve anymore over the last few years. Yeah. I wonder if with Kipchoge and others you know, within this generation, if we're going to see that same kind of flattening out of the curve to where there's not quite the same steep drop-off or it's delayed a few extra years, things of that yeah. nature. I mean, if there's anybody that can break a trend, it's him. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, so you know, the, the, the world record, since you brought it up, the world record for the Masters Men's Marathon is like 208.30, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, he ran 202, 20, you know, he ran 202.37 the other day. Right, and just to clarify, too, Masters is forty and above. Yeah, forty and above. So, so in six years, is he going to lose six minutes in six years? Oh, that's fascinating. To think I, yeah, about. I don't know. I mean, we'll see, right? And and, and but it, but it's also fascinating to think about because he's been at such a high level for so long. Remember, he was he was a world champion in the five k, mm-hmm. you know, fifteen years ago. Yeah. Um, and so so yeah, we'll have to see. Um, but uh, but yeah, a lot of those people who have come on late, and we're going to talk about one of them here in just a minute um, when we talk about Sinead Divers, um, but a lot of those people who have come on late maybe didn't start until kind of late, and he definitely has been running his whole life. Um, so yeah, hard yeah, to and, say. and to kind of 
you know put a, a bit of a cap or, or a bow on this conversation it's it's going to be interesting to see too but for those who are wondering you know why is it in these other sports are we seeing this improvement in performance it actually is not because the athletes now are working harder or running more miles or running more intense miles yeah, it's, it's actually that they're resting more. they're recovering better. they're recovering yeah. a lot better the yeah. real gains are off the field yeah yeah totally um and they're taking it seriously i mean kind of like what right. you just said they're 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 uh, they're they're acting more like athletes when they're off the field. They're they're taking a twenty four hour approach, right? As opposed to 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 uh, drinking and smoking cigarettes and doing all those various other things. They're you know baseball players do yoga, which you know twenty years ago who would have thought, right? I couldn't imagine Pete Rose um, doing yoga. Yeah, right. Um, and so it, yeah, it's it, it's it's much much different. But you end up getting people in all sports. I mean, you have you know obviously Tom Brady's the best example and and. Uh, football. You have Tiger Woods in golf. You have Yarmir Yager in, in hockey. I mean, you know, you have all these people that that are uh, breaking what we thought people were capable of doing um, mm-hmm. only 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, um, speaking of Kipchoge, let's go ahead and yeah wrap him up. Um, uh, he was in the press conference the next day on Monday, and they said, uh, you know, what's next for you? Um, and I like this quote. He said, I come from Africa, and in Africa, we don't chase two rabbits at once. My rabbit was actually London Marathon. <laughs> he caught that rabbit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, so I appreciate, and I, this is a way that, in which I differ from Elliot Kipchoge. You know, I tend to line up like 15 races in a row. Um, you know, and I, I know like every race. 12 of which do. are Disney themed. So, yeah, or Star Wars themed. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, I, I, I tend to have this, I literally have a long list of, of races in a document that I call the radar. Um, and uh, he's good at just saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. But he did say that before he hangs it up, he wants to do all six marathon majors. Um, he's done Berlin, obviously, four times. He set the world record there. He's now won uh, uh, London four times in a row. He won Chicago in 2014 in, 2000, in, in 204, um, which shows you like, he wasn't even the headliner that day. Um, Bekele, Kenanisa Bekele was in that race, and everybody thought Kenanisa Bekele was going to win. And this unheralded guy named Elliot Kipchoge came out of nowhere and won. Um, but um, he's never done Tokyo, but he's more importantly, to me at least, he's never done New York City or Boston. Um, and he's just, he said... I would love to see him do Boston. Oh, I would love to see him run either one of those. Um, I, would, I, would, I would take a trip to New York City or Boston... To, to be a fan at the race to watch him run. I really would. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'll see. Um, now, if he does Boston, he's going to have to not do London. And he's definitely yeah. into doing London, right? He's won it four times in a row. Right. Smart money is he's probably going to try and win it again next year. You know, so we'll see. So it might be a little while before he ends up uh, running Boston. Uh, but some folks are saying New York City might be this fall. That you just put a good image in my head or a good idea of actually right? thinking about him racing here in the States and being able to see oh, him. Yeah. Isn't that exciting, though? Yeah. I, I, I actually, it excites me more than I thought it would. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, as weird as that sounds to say, that like when I first read that, I was like, holy crap, that sounds great. Just because I hadn't really truly ever considered it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I find that super exciting, super exciting. A couple other final notes on the men's race here. Um, there was a new Belgian record set by a guy named Bashir Abdi. He ran 207.03. Uh, and there was a new Scottish record uh, set by Calum Hawkins. Uh, he ran 208.14. So uh, congrats to both those guys as well. Let's talk about the women's race. You ready to talk about the women's race? Yep, let's go for it. All right, so women's race was won by Bridget Kosgai, who we've talked about before. She won Chicago back in the fall. Um, and 
in a similar fashion to the way that she won Chicago. It's just that she just kind of ran and sped up and ran and ran and was just ran away and crossed the finish line. And everybody's like, holy crap, she just ran really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, she kind of did something similar this time. Um, the women's race went out in they went out slowly. Um, they actually, the women's race, unlike the men's race, they let the pacers go. And so the pacers were just running off by themselves. And all these women who were really, really heralded prior to this race, I mean, this was considered to be the greatest marathon uh, women's field of all time ever assembled. Um, they all just ran with the second group of pacers. Um, and so Bridget Cosguy goes through halfway at 111.38, along with a whole bunch of other people. Um, and then she throws down a 106.42 for the second half of the race to run 218.20 and to win by about two minutes. Um, that 106.42, uh, that's the fastest half marathon in a women's marathon of all time. Uh, Mary Catani, uh, who we've talked about before because she won New York City last year, um, she had run 66.54 for the first half in London two years ago, and she ran 66.58 for the second half in New York last year. Um, but both of those were slower than uh, Bridget Kosky's 66.42 in the second half of the uh, the London Marathon just the other day. Um, yeah, mind-blowing. Loved it. I mean, I... I just love how more and more we see. And I don't know if it's just me or if it, there's this is an actual trend. It's not something I've looked into, but it does feel like we are seeing more and more where these elite pros are going out at much more of an even pace, mm-hmm. or really dropping the hammer of the final 10k or so. And that to me is fascinating and exciting because I don't feel like that was the narrative 10 years ago where. No you could almost drop a hammer at the final 10K of a marathon. Yeah. It was almost believed that the 20-mile wall was truly a wall that couldn't really be bust through. Well, you know, most most world... Re- so, you know, as you're talking about it, most world records have been run with negative splits mm-hmm. um, over the course of the last little while here. But I do remember really well in the mid-1990s, there was a, a Boston runner, a guy named Cosmos Nendetti. Um, okay. And he won Boston three years in a row and set the the course record at one point in one of those victories and in at least two of them if not all three of them he ran negative splits and that was seemed to be so paradigm breaking that he yeah. was doing it that way um and and just so incredible um and so yeah i i i agree with you at least to say that that's actually become the strategy now yeah um that, it, that, that you're going to kind of go out on pace or even slightly slow and then finish hard Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely become the strategy. I think, which I think is interesting. And I just love it to come from kind of a human perspective too, because that means our goal isn't necessarily to survive the marathon, but to almost conquer it, so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. We talk about a lot on this podcast how the marathon yeah. always has the final say. I see your point. And, yeah. and you should go in with you know humbly, like, look, this is not an easy task, even if you've already done ten of them and mm-hmm. have gotten in your long runs, etc. But it is. You should of, respect the distance. You should respect the distance mm-hmm. and the and the race and what you're putting your body through. Yeah. But it's also really cool to, to think that kind of as a racing community, at the very least, the elites have really started to move from "I'm going to survive this" to "I'm going to almost conquer it," so yeah. to speak. Yeah, I, I, I do think that. Yeah, I, I do think that that the and I, as we're talking about, I'm thinking about it as I often do. I think there's been a shift in at mm-hmm. least in the approach, like over the course of the past, the past decade. Yeah, really. Um, as opposed to saying, as opposed to saying, you know, we're. Um, we're just going to go out and run as hard as we possibly can. There, there has been a little bit more of a of a shift towards we're going to finish hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I believe, I believe. Um, but yeah, 
I mean, uh, anyway, so back to Bridget Koski. Uh, Chicago winner, like I said, and now now uh, London Marathon champion as well. When we talked about Chicago in the fall, I remember you're saying um, with their performance in Chicago, she very much had put herself in the conversation for medal contenders in 2020. Mm-hmm. And I think that's definitely true. I think that's even more true now given the, 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 the quality of the field that she just flat ran away from um, in the back half of this marathon the other day. Uh, of the London Marathon. Second place was Vivian Chariot. She ran 2.2014. Uh, third place, uh, it was very close between third, fourth, and fifth. Uh, third place was Rosa Dereje. Uh, she ran 2.2051. Fourth place was Gladys Toronto. She ran 2.2052. And then fifth place was you know, one of the greatest marathoners of all time, Mary Catani. Uh, she ran 2.2058. Um, and uh, she's the one that we talked about a lot, like I said, at, at the end of New York. Um, sixth place was an American making her debut. Emily Sisson. Um, Emily Sisson ran 2.23.08. It's the second fastest debut American uh, marathon for a woman. Um, Jordan Hesse, you'll remember a couple years ago, ran 2.23 flat in Boston. Um, and Emily Sisson ran 2.23.08. Um, we're saying Emily Sisson and Jordan Hesse, both 27 years old. And so, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about the, the, the state of women's, uh, American women's marathoning and how strong it is. Um, but a lot of the people we've talked about are older women. Um, you know, I think with Emily Sisson and, and Jordan Hesse, we're seeing the next great women marathoners in the United States, which I think is exciting. Absolutely. I mean, that was so encouraging because she had so much potential and kind of so much hype going into this yeah. race yeah. where we knew like, all right, this is kind of a, she's got a lot of potential here. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And then she totally rose to the occasion and showed that she was worth the hype. And that's always so exciting when you see any athlete in any sport that, that has a, a very high billing and then they live up to it yeah. right out of the gates. I agree. With Most you. of them struggle like rookie year, first race, etc. Mm-hmm. But she really came out throwing fastball, so to speak, yeah. um, by running a you know eight seconds off the fastest marathon debut in American history. Right. So I will definitely be rooting for her in the uh, Olympic trials here in Atlanta. For sure, for sure. And she has, of course, an Olympic trials qualifying time, but also an Olympic qualifying time. And so just kind of circling back to that very first thing I said, um, that if she if she is able to, to place high at the Olympic trials, she is now qualified for the Olympics as well. Um yeah, I uh, she she came really close to breaking the American record in the half marathon just uh, a couple of months ago. I think it was in Houston, um, and so yeah, like you say, hopes for her were high, um, and I'm glad to see that. Now, her training partner is one of my favorites who I've I've talked about a lot on this podcast, Molly Huddle, uh, and they're mm-hmm. both cho- coached by the same guy, a guy named John Tracy. Uh, and Molly Huddle PR'd by a few seconds, um, not a big PR. She ran two twenty six thirty three. Um, and she finished 12th, and she was disappointed with that afterwards. She had hoped to run closer to what Emily Sisson ran, um, and she just said she felt bad kind of the whole time. Um, She was able to hold it together until about the last 10K, and the last 10K she kind of fell apart a little bit. Um, But, uh, yeah, I was was sorry to see Molly Huddle not run quite as well as – and she just just hasn't yet, Mm -hmm. Um, which – you know, she'll, she'll run, she'll try and defend her 10,000 meter championship this summer, her track championship this summer. And I don't know, we'll see if she sticks with the marathon. Um, I mean, I assume she's going to run the trials. She has an Olympic trials and of course an Olympic qualifying time. Um, but, uh, I don't, I don't know whether, I don't know. What do you think? It may depend on how she runs in the trials, but at the same time, that's probably, that would be too late to, to make a switch at that yeah. point. Yeah. I mean, what has been her strongest 5k showing or showing on the track recently? 
recently, I mean, she's won she's won four straight U.S. 10K championships. Right. And then she set the American record in Rio in 2016 in what was undoubtedly the best women's 10,000 meter race of all time, um, but still finished outside the top five. I think she finished she finished in the top ten, but outside the top five. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, anyway. And she may stick with the 10K. I will say this too. It is much easier to kind of go f- train for the marathon and then make a switch down to the 10K in the final year mm-hmm. than vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with you on that. Um, yeah. It's it's kind of funny because, I mean, and I'm just thinking about this as we're talking about it. A year ago, the two marathoners, two women marathoners that we talked about the most on this podcast were Molly Huddle and Gwen Jorgensen. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, we talked about them in very different ways, <laughs> um, but um, but Molly Huddle um, has done better than Gwen Jorgensen, but but she still just hasn't quite broken through. Um, and then Gwen Jorgensen, we haven't heard anything from her mm-hmm. in a while, in a while. Um, anyway, so back to the women's race. Let's kind of real quickly talk about um, uh, how it went down. Like I said, they let the pacers go. Um, they all ran with the second group pacers. And so literally the pacers just kind of went out on their own and, and ran through the first half like they were supposed to. Uh, they went through and, and like I said, 111.38. Um, and uh, Emily Sisson and Molly Huddle were in the lead pack at that point. Um, and Emily, Emily Sisson had said that she wanted to go through halfway in 111. And so she had to adjust on the fly because she didn't want to lead the race you know, in London in her first in her debut marathon and so she actually had to back off a little bit and end up going through the first half a little bit slower than she planned to um but then uh mile 15 bridget Kazguy throws down a 508 then mile 16 a 512 then mile 17 a 502 then mile 18 a 457 then mile 19 a five flat um and that kind of thins everybody out uh and then mile 22 she throws down another 505 and that pretty much shuts the door Right, she th- um, she threw her hammer down a few miles sooner than Kipchoge. Yeah, or at least people were able to ha- to hang a little bit better with Kipchoge than they were with her. I mean, she 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 really turned the screws there. Um, so yeah, pretty incredible. Um, and like we said, she was in the midst of running the fastest half marathon ever in a marathon. So you know that has a lot to do with it. Um, yeah. So we'll see. Um, one other kind of quick story I wanted to tell about the women's race. Um, the leader at halfway was a woman named Sinead Diver. Um, she's an Australian. She's 42 years old. She ultimately ended up finishing seventh in 2:24:11. A 42-year-old woman runs 2:24:11 from Australia. So incredible, super fast. Um, now. So your story gets even Back better. Back to our aging curve discussion. Right? Exactly. Yeah, no. Well, let's take a little bit farther. She was born in Ireland. She moved to Australia in 2002. She didn't start running until 2010 after she gave birth to her oldest son. Um, and then less than a decade later, she's now a 224 marathoner. Um, she ran 231 um, before uh, in 2017. Uh, she ran 225 um, last October at the Melbourne Marathon, and then she lowered her PR to 2:24:11, um, makes her making her the third fastest Australian in history, third fastest Australian woman in history, um, at age 42. Wow! So yeah. she started running, yeah, what, nine years age ago, 33 or so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I, I would love to see then kind of to see how her her times jumped from year to year. Yeah. And kind of track, you know, yeah. how much she was able to improve. And we talk a lot about on this podcast about how, I mean, you can keep improving for 
some say seven to 14 years or so of of putting in the easy runs, putting in the long runs, just kind of slowly, yeah. steady, steadily building your fitness. But the presumption in that is that you're going to start running when you're 20, not that you're going to start running when you're 33. Exactly. <laughs> so that's that adds a very interesting recall yeah. to the whole equation. Yeah. And I mean, and I definitely know people. Okay, so so there's there's a guy that comes to mind in particular that I know that's a masters runner from from here in Atlanta, um, and he was a national masters champion in the United States um, at about age forty eight or forty nine. Mm-hmm. He didn't start running until about age thirty eight or thirty nine, right? And then discovered he had some affinity for it, and of course he enjoyed it as well. And and but he had never run as a younger man right he wasn't like like me and you who ran in high school and ran in college and all right. that sort of thing right um and so he kind of reached that zenith right about 10 years mm-hmm. right um which makes sense but he still was good for a master's runner and he would win the local road race and all that sort of thing don't get me wrong but he's not running he's certainly not running a 224 um or whatever the male equivalent of a 224 20 would minutes be. under yeah olympic qualifying yeah olympic trials qualifying right time. right yeah five minutes under olympic qualifying time so that yeah. so that's, that's basically like running a 205 or 206 for a guy yeah yeah he's not running that fast God, you know no one is um yeah so i mean that's that's just incredible um so yeah stoked about that for her um very good let's talk about a couple other quick things about the uh the london marathon itself just the marathon as a whole since we've talked about the men's race and the women's race um so you want to talk about the uh the seaweed packets Sure. So I was not um, made aware of this until I believe like the day or two beforehand when me my too. fiance sent me an article that she found on the skim or one of the other like newsletters she reads. So, you know, as as all runners know, you know, when you run a marathon, they they go through just gobs and gobs of water bottles because mm-hmm. I mean they hand you water bottles right. at various mile markers, and they have to have enough water for thirty thousand runners often mm-hmm. or tens right. of thousands of runners. So that's a lot of plastic, right? Um, to say the least. And uh, you know the running community does tend to be pretty environmentally um, aware, mm-hmm. just in general compared to the general population. And so the London Marathon this year started giving away instead of handing water bottles. They handed water out in like biodegradable. Was it seaweed? It's made of seaweed. Made of seaweed, yeah. And so they would instead of having, you know, handing out water bottles and at the end of the race having people sweep up just, you know, an ocean (pun intended) of water bottles, they would just sweep up the biodegradable seaweed, which they claim could decompose naturally in like four to six weeks, and then just be like they're gone. Right. Or you could eat it. (laughs) <laughs> oh, you need it, right? Yeah. Um, but have you ever had seaweed by any? I have, but they say that when they make these little packets, they take out the slime and the seaweedish, okay, sea- seaweediness. Okay. The only yeah. yeah, the only seaweed I've had was dried and like incredibly salted. So yeah, yeah, like was... like a sushi nori, like yes. and stuff like that. Yeah, very different. Yeah, yeah. But um, what a fascinating idea! I mean, I this was great. brought up by a, a startup which was started in in 2013 in London or, or based in yep. 2013 in London. And this is the first marathon that I've heard of to ever do this. I think it's great. And what a phenomenal idea. Oh, I think it's great. I mean, whenever you start to kind of lose hope in humanity, it can be you know easy to turn on the news <laughs> and see a lot of bad things. But how fascinating is it that people can come up with an idea like this? Oh, yeah. I think For such great. a simple, what I didn't even know was a problem. I didn't even think about when I think about all the things you know, a marathon brings and does for the community. Mm-hmm. But you knew plastic was a problem. Yes, I knew yeah. plastic was a problem. Yeah, so they, they last year they used uh, over 900,000 bottles, plastic bottles, okay. at the London Marathon. And they set a goal to reduce it by 20%, to reduce okay. it by, and that's 200,000 bottles, 
um, when you're talking about reducing 20%. That seems like a pretty um, modest goal, but you're talking about 200,000 bottles that they're not going to be putting into the environment or into landfills or into the ocean or whatever else happens to be. Um, and so, uh, and they successfully did that. They used about 700,000, which, you know, they have a little ways to go. They only passed out the seaweed packets at mile, at one of the mile markers. It was a late one too. It was like mile 23 or 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I haven't heard any negative reports on it. Um, by all means, if any of you are listening and you ran the uh, the, uh, the London Marathon and you were handed this seaweed packet, uh, let us know about it. Uh, but they say, the company says that they also use them like at rock concerts and stuff like that. And they sell them just as open packets on their own. So like if you're going camping or something, you can fill them up with whatever you want to fill them up with and take them with you. And then, you, like we said, you either eat the packet, which is tasteless, um, or you kind of suck out of it like it's like it's a juice box or something, and you throw it down and it completely completely biodegrades in four to six weeks, as opposed to 4,000 to 6,000 years that it takes a typical plastic bottle to, to, to biodegrade. Um, so yeah, I think it's super cool. Just fascinating. You yeah. wonder, and what a great idea to introduce this idea at something like a rock concert or a marathon, yeah. where you can kind of get people used to the idea and, mm-hmm. and start to normalize the idea yeah. of drinking from these packets, Agreed. as opposed to just kind of dropping the cold turkey into the fryer so to speak yeah Yeah. no i think it's great and and uh, two more quick things i'll mention about it one is i like this is what leadership looks like to me yeah do you know what i'm saying and so so to me this fires me up because it's a london marathon recognizing we have a big presence um we have a lot of influence and we're not and and we're gonna we're gonna lead from the front And, and, and we're gonna say um that 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 we're going to make this change and we're going to normal like you said normalize the change and we're going to encourage other races to do it as well and so, so now if you take like the flying pig marathon for example which has little eight thousand pet or something like that flying pig marathon can't very well say oh we have too many people to do all this experimental type stuff london did it and they have forty thousand people you telling me you can't do it with your eight thousand people yeah um and so I, I really appreciate that they're, they're, they're doing that. I think that's super cool. And I think that's what Big City Marathon should do. Um, mm-hmm. the, these, I mean, London Marathon is, is the most popular marathon in the world. It's the hardest to get into of any marathon on the planet. Um, and, and I think it's cool that, that they're, they're, they made this a priority and they're doing it. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Um, all right. The other thing we'll talk about with it is the vapor flies. <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Elliot Kipchoge, um, uh, um, the second place guy, uh, Mosinet Garamu, um, and several other people were wearing the latest version of the Vaporfly. Um, so the next percent. It's the called the percent. next percent. Yeah, they, they call it the next percent. They're not calling it the five percent for whatever reason. They're calling it the next percent. Um, um, Kipchoge wore them, Garamu wore them, Kazgai wore them, Chariot wore them. I mean, a bunch of them were being worn. Yeah, just to clarify too, there's calling it the next percent because it doesn't increase efficiency to five percent. Mm-hmm. So they can just be vague and be like, "Oh, it's better. It's better." Yeah. But but now they did say in a press release they did say some people that tested with the lab tested better than five percent, right? Some people not so good. Blah, 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 blah. So basically the same thing as a four percent. So it works better for some people than it does for others. Um, but the same lab at Colorado. Um, did the clinical trials of it prior to its release prior prior to to it hitting the road literally on on in london on sunday and then it hit the app you saw for sale on monday for a cool 275 dollars yeah. um, and it sold out immediately yeah it was gone um and so um 
But the lab, unlike last time, has a non-disclosure agreement. And so the lab can't re reveal their results. They can't say, these were our findings with this pair of shoes. Um, in order for, for, for Nike to let them do the testing of the shoes, Nike said, you can't reveal what the results actually are. And so all the lab is allowed to say is that they are significantly better. But what it, exactly what does that mean? They, they give a significant, they, they, they provide a significant advantage over the 4%. Don't know exactly what that means. Now, some interesting things about it. Um, that feels a little shadier than it should. Sorry to cut I agree. you off. No, I agree. The, the non-disclosure agreement. And I mean, again, Nike's a company. They're here to make money. We, I totally get it. Um, but we're kind of used to in our sport being a little bit protected from some of the commercialism mm -hmm. of other sports mm -hmm. a little bit, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, so the fact of, that you can't reveal the testing is a little like, Hmm. Yeah. Makes you, it makes you pause. I agree. Um, and I, I, I think one of the things that was, um, that was interesting and convincing about the testing before was its transparency mm -hmm. because science and scientific research by its very nature is supposed to be transparent. That's the whole point. So that, that other labs and other scientists can see what you did and they can replicate it. And then once it gets replicated several times, then it become, it can become scientific fact or scientific law. Right. That's right. the whole point. That's how science works. Right. Um, and the point of science too, is like, it's a community of scientists. No right. one owns right. the, exactly. the knowledge gained. Exactly. And so, and so for, for a scientific lab to say, yeah, we tested it. They're significantly better. We can't tell you anything about test protocols. We can't tell you anything. That's that, that I agree. That does feel a little bit shady. Now recall that we don't know exactly how they work. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about what they changed between the first version and this version. Mm -hmm. um, they did not change the plate. They did increase the amount of foam. They added 15% more foam to this shoe. They changed the upper so that it won't quite be as it won't get wet as much. Um, it won't carry as much water and maybe won't give you as many blisters. Um, they made it thinner. It weighs literally exactly the same thing. Um, and despite the additional foam despite the additional foam they dropped the the heel to toe drop just a little bit like three centimeters or three millimeters not three centimeters okay um three centimeters so not a not a gigantic difference there in in heel to toe drop but the biggest difference being that they added 15 percent more of that what they call um what are they called what's the foam they call it it's called pbax is his actual name but they, they, they call it like ReactX or something like something that. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, they added 15% more foam, which to me is a tacit admission that, hey, what makes these things fast is the foam. Yeah. You know? Um, they didn't change the plate at all. It's the foam. So um, maybe... And and to maybe cut Nike, give Nike the benefit of the doubt, maybe the reason why they don't want us to, to know a whole lot about the testing is because we're kind of starting to figure it out. <laughs> not you and me, but and, we being, you know, the non-Nike And people. I have not looked to see what has been patented by Nike and what hasn't, so I'm totally just yeah. pulling this out of nowhere. It could be that the plate is patented, mm -hmm. but the foam is not. So if we identify Maybe. the foam as being yeah. what's yeah. causing folks to be faster, they don't want that to be revealed quite yet so they can get yeah. a little bit ahead of the competition. Well, like, like a little we, bit more ahead, I should yeah, say. Yeah, like we said in our in our Vaporfly podcast, um, there was a scientist that did a lot of the testing. He said that, that if it's 4%, if it makes you 4% more efficient, he chalks up 3% of that to the foam and 1% of that to the plate. Yep. One way or That's another, right. it's, it's, it's definitely the interaction between the plate and the foam. They definitely work in such a way that... that um, 
that that you have you can't have one without the other and expect the benefits but but nonetheless it, it is i think very telling they didn't change the plate they added more foam um, that's a great point yeah yeah so um all right any final words about running and the the london marathon and all that sort of thing no i'm hoping to uh run a marathon in a few years and check in water from a seaweed biodegradable <laughs> cup while you're wearing your vapor fly next percents right or six percent <laughs> there you go if yes. that's the case the foam will be like 50 millimeters deep <laughs> that's right it's just it's just gonna be it's gonna be foam that you tape to your foot there's gonna be nothing <laughs> else to it yeah um and i'll be like seven foot four when i put them on because the foam will just be absolutely like... <laughs> yeah and you'll win the race because you're just so dang intimidating um the, the i am never intimidating i can assure <laughs> you of that i had a uh, I had a friend who reached out to me today via text and and we were we were talking about the next percent and he said are you going to buy some and i said um well i said i have a marathon this weekend that i'm going to wear on the first pair of vapor flies that i that i bought and it's going to be my second marathon on them and so they're going they're going to get retired after this i actually bought an, another pair of vapor flies cuz i got a good deal on them and that's going to cover me for two more more marathons, which is basically going to be the two marathons I run in 2020. Mm-hmm. So if I'm if if I'm ultimately going to buy a next percent, it's not going to be until 2021. Yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of funny the way that you because because you just you don't wear them, you know. We've talked about how the, the the way that they're so fragile just changes the way that you approach perching them and wearing them and all that sort of thing. Yeah, it's yeah. very different than any other piece of a sporting equipment I can think of off the yeah. top of my head yeah. where it's like, you know, you only use this baseball bat for like 10 swings of the bat yeah. or for yeah. three games. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the only thing that I can kind of compare it to is like race wheels on a bike. But race wheels on a bike, you wear, you use those a lot. You yeah. can use those. I mean, once you buy those, you've invested in them and you can use them for every race from now until they break, which you have to work pretty hard to break a set of wheels these days. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah. These you use for two races, and that's it. Um, all right. Uh, let's switch over to some research here real quick over the course of the last few minutes here. It is a news and research day, after all, and, and we want to do that. I've been talking a lot, so why don't you tell us about your research first? Sure. So mine's a pretty interesting one, um, and it probably hits close to home for, for a lot of folks listening because, as we mentioned a lot of times on this podcast, most of us are not professional runners, or when we have so many other responsibilities beyond running. We have... We go to work, we run after work, or we wake up at that 5 a.m. hour you were talking about, and you know run then and then, and then go um, and get and get put in a full day of work, you know at an office job or, or something like that. Well, um, researchers at the University of Texas have discovered a remarkable new protocol for making your body immune to the benefits of exercise. Haha, <laughs> I know what it is. You do. All right, it is indeed working an office job and sitting down sitting. for most yep. of the day. Yep. I saw, um, I, I saw that headline. I didn't read it, so I'm glad you brought it. But yeah, I so, saw that, that, oh, you're exercising? Great. You're canceling it out by sitting. That's right. Keep going. So you've heard of no pain, no gain? <laughs> this is pain with no gain. <laughs> so, it's, it's, it's sit, no gain. <laughs> that's right. So with this method, not only do you get to spend hours underneath fluorescent lights working on projects that may not inspire you, but you also get to sabotage your own workout routines while doing so. Uh, that that kind of makes like me want to stand up. I like that sales pitch, by the way. So uh, it makes me want to um, stand up. So let me tell you about this study. So it was published in the Journal of Applied Physiology, um, and what they did is they they looked at um, subjects and they had them spend four days of of prolonged sitting to and they because what they wanted to do is they wanted to induce what they called a state of exercise resistance. Okay, so <laughs> so which I thought that was pretty. Uh, I mean, if that's not an academic term, then I, I don't love know what academic is. terms. Keep going. Um, now, 
The idea that long bouts of uninterrupted sitting might be bad for your health, it's, it's received a lot of attention over the past decade, and yeah. we've talked about it a lot on this podcast. Sitting is the new smoking, yeah. Right, and, and the reasons may seem obvious. You know, If you're sitting still all the time, you're not exercising, right? So that's part of it. But there's also emerging evidence like this study that suggests there's actually a deeper connection between sedentary time and a lack of exercise, with the combination of both being worse than either one on its own. Hmm. Um, so in this particular study, researchers wanted to look at the effect sitting all day has on your body's reaction to exercise. Right. So what does it look like when you sit down all day and then you put in a vigorous workout at the end of a long day of work? Okay. Now, we all know that exercise generally has a very positive impact on our body. But, you know, like I said, they want to kind of put it in context of someone who is sedentary for a long period of time for several days in a row, like most of us are throughout the week. You know, you're, you're kind of modern, average office worker. So they had 10 volunteers, which is noteworthy because it's not a huge study. It's only 10 volunteers, um, complete two four-day protocols that involve sitting for more than 13 hours a day while taking fewer than 4,000 steps. And at the end of the four-day period, they did a vigorous one-hour treadmill workout. Okay. Now, a few things stood out to me. Wait, I get... when, when did they do the vigorous treadmill workout? Uh, let's see, at the end of the four-day period. Okay, okay. Okay, so a few things stood out to me here. First, 13 hours of sedentary behavior. That stood out to me as a lot because most people work 9 to 5. 9 to 5 is 8 hours. Yeah, but then they come home and sit and watch TV. That's exactly the point I was going to make. And yeah. if you are living in a city like Atlanta, which generally entails mm-hmm. one to two hours of commuting a day. The average commute in Atlanta is one hour. Okay, there mm-hmm. we go. Now you're getting close to that 13-hour right. mark that they had. Right. Um, and then the 4,000 steps, to put that into context, um, according to a 2010 study of a thousand or over 1,000 Americans, they found that um, on average they got about 5,000 steps a day, which is about two and a half miles worth of steps. Okay. So slightly fewer steps than the average American, but they're in the same ballpark. Yeah. Okay. Now, long story short, what the researchers try to do is emulate the life of, a, of an average American or average, you know, office working American, 13 hours of sitting, four day stretches, roughly 4,000 steps over that four day week. Mm-hmm. And after, you know, completing the required sed- sedentary time, they're asked to complete the workout right. at a vigorous intensity level. I, I keep harping on that just to make sure I get it right. Okay. Um, now, normally, a one hour workout would produce a set of metabolic benefits that persist for at least a day. Okay. I should also make sure I, I kind of hone in on that too. They're not looking at all the different reactions of your body has to exercise. They are specifically focusing focusing on the changes in your metabolism. Okay. Specifically, um, you know, your insulin sensitivity and glucose tolerance, both of which are associated with heart health. They both of those improve immediately upon exercise, mm-hmm. and the benefits kind of stay with you for about twenty four hours or so. Okay. Um, likewise, there's a rise in triglycerides circulating in your blood after um, a fatty meal, which contributes to blocked arteries, that's greatly reduced after exercise. Not only are you burning the fat, but also kind of helps you process it for about 24 hours afterwards. Right, right. So when the researchers... um, I mean, I I guess a simple way to say it is it kind of revs your engine a little bit. Yes. Yeah. And then it kind of almost keeps your engine going a little bit after you're actually done, almost while the car is parked in the garage. So yeah, so so, so if if you think about it as like revving the engine, you take your foot off the accelerator and kind of... That's kind of what your body does, but it does it over the course of 24 hours. There you go. Yeah. I like it. Um, So the researchers, they fed their volunteers high fat, high sugar ice cream, and half and half creamer the next day after the exercise. 
I, I, I don't see how they got them to volunteer for this stuff. I know. This is a hard sell here. <laughs> Maybe they only told him about the ice cream and didn't tell him about the work. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, that, was the, that was the fine part at the bottom. You get to sit for four days and, <laughs> and watch cream. TV, and then at the end, we're going to give you some ice cream. I can't imagine they find college students who would be willing to volunteer right? for that stuff. Yeah, I can't imagine. Um, and what they found was with these, you know, with these uh, volunteers – they had none of the benefits that persist in those 24 hours after exercising okay. the way you would expect. Right. Um, now, one of the, the – so you know, their workout no longer had that same kind of dynamite punch to it that you would expect based on right. previous research where, right. as you said, there's kind of that rev down period where you're still right. getting benefits. Now, one of the unanswered questions in this kind of debate or in this kind of sitting debate has been whether or not you know, exercise and sitting are independent factors. Right. But this starts to hint to the fact that, no, they're actually quite entertained. You yeah. can't just kind of yeah. – you can't sit all day, blow out a workout for an hour, and then still see the same benefits. Right. Yeah, and so, and I think that's an important point to make. So just to make sure that it's clear, if sitting if, – if you were to approach sitting and exercise as independent factors of one another, that would mean that the reason why sitting is bad for your exercise routine is because you're sitting rather than exercising. Right. What this is suggesting is that is that even if you exercise – if you sit a whole lot throughout the course of your life, it's going to thwart the benefits of the exercise. Exactly. Um, that's that's kind of huge. Um, yeah. Or so, the- so so it's not it's not just about the time you're spending. It's actually about like sitting actually does something to your body. I'm standing up really right now. Exactly. Um, and it's kind of depressing to think about for a yeah. lot of us that have to sit for for long periods of time. You know, for professional reasons. But it is good to kind of have that knowledge. And while this study doesn't explore how this link occurs, um, there are some previous studies that kind of start to chip away at that question for like, why does sitting for this long period of time take away some of the benefits? So for example, previous research in rats has shown that a series of metabolic changes take place when muscles don't contract for long periods of time. Okay. Okay, so for example, um, levels of enzyme called liptoprotein, I always have a hard time pronouncing that, which helps regulate the triglyceride levels we talked about, mm-hmm. that starts to decrease. Okay. Okay, so you're... But we bo- still don't really know the mechanism, though. Exactly. Like, why would that decrease? Exactly. Just because you're sitting down. Um, so, let's see here. So, you know, as you point out, as we, we started to point out, we still are barely scratching the surface for identifying why this link occurs. Mm-hmm. But from a functional perspective, for most of us, we can at least say to ourselves, okay, we know this link is there. What can we do to start to prevent this or yeah. to kind of start to get more from our workout? Yeah. Um, now, Dr. Coyle, the, the leader of the lab who conducted this study, um, he suggested that getting about eight to 10,000 steps throughout the day is enough to ward off a lot of the quote-unquote exercise resistance. Okay. So that's pretty good. That so, is so, much so, more so doable. You, so, so you can still sit. But just get steps. Correct. Correct. Okay. Now, now, like most metrics, I'm sure steps in themselves aren't the magic bullet, but I'm sure right. there's kind of a convolution of... And, and you also you factors. also wonder that's independent of sitting also. So is, is does 8,000, 10,000 steps matter because it means you're not sitting down while you're taking those steps? Or does taking steps actually do something for you that counteracts sitting? So in other words, could you still sit... Let's say you sit for 13 hours total, but you get up and walk... I don't know, a thousand steps in between each one of those hours or something like would that would that then cancel back out the sitting such that when you do your vigorous hour of exercise, your engine stays red for 24 hours. That's not a question answered by the study. 
Right. But. So, I mean, he simply said, he did point out you have to get those steps throughout the day. Yeah. You can't do 8,000 steps at 8 a.m., right. sit for a long period of time, right. then do the, the workout. It's got to be something throughout the day. Um, you know, but, you know, to kind of end on a takeaway here, um, it's really never about one great workout. We talk about that all the time in terms yeah. of, like, training for a big race. Yeah. You don't have one single workout that, that pushes you over the edge, so to speak, into being a great runner or a great athlete, et cetera. Nor is it even about one moment on your training block. Like, when we write training peaks calendars and we mark our, our running journals and our training journals, we tend to focus on, here's what I did for the, the training cycle or for that, that, you know, while running. But part of it, too, is what you're doing when you're not training. Yeah. You know, it's all about kind of when you add up all the different elements together. So, you know, one thing I always like to do or one habit that I've instilled for a while now is just to get up every two hours or so. Mm-hmm. Go for a little walk around the building. Oh, yeah. Not saying you have to leave your building, but it could be just a loop around your floor. Yeah. Just something to get some kind of muscle contraction for a few minutes, yeah. you know, to break up an hour or two or so. Well, you know, and, and Apple Watches and Fitbits and all that sort of thing, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll scream at you to tell you to get up and, and stand if you have it in a little while. I mm-hmm. mean, that, so, so you can set those alarms to actually do that. Um, the interesting thing about it is that they they set those alarms to tell you to do that because we already realized that sitting is bad, but, but this adds a new wrinkle to the whole sitting is bad thing that, that – you, you, you need to get up and move around because you're not going to be getting the metabolic benefits of doing your workout, even if you do your workout. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, so, okay, two quick things I'll say about this one. All right, are you done talking about it? Yes. Okay, so two quick things I'll say about it. Number one, as you mentioned at the outset, this only looked at the metabolic effects of, of the sitting on the, well, on the body, right? So, mm-hmm. so it, it only looked at how the sitting affected the metabolic effects. Um, that's what I'm trying to say. I wonder like what the other effects are, right? And so let's say your metabolism doesn't stay high, your triglycerides don't 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 get on all that sort of thing. But if you think about like your body's response to a workout and the way that your body recovers from a workout and grows stronger as a result, I wonder if it interferes with that as well. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And and it's and it's kind of fascinating because we tend to think um about you know, in cycling, they always say, why stand when you can sit and why sit when you can sit down? I mean, that's like a really big, you know, common thing to say inside of cycling. And kind of makes me feel like, you know what, if you did a really hard workout that morning, sure, you should rest and you should sit, but you, sh- you should also kind of get up and move around maybe too, because, because if you sit too much, mm-hmm. potentially, and I'm, I'm, I'm inferring a lot from this, from this article, but if you sit too much pre or post workout, it may interfere with the 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 fitness gains you're going to get from an actual workout yeah i think that's striking yeah and, and then the flip side of that too is what effect does it have on the actual workout itself oh yeah like are you able yeah. to, to generate yeah, like as much definitely, testosterone it, yeah. to really power through a workout yeah. if you've been sitting all day and then all of a sudden you got to go yeah it's de- it's definitely going to thwart your, your 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 workout yeah for sure uh to say nothing of the fact that that and we've talked about this before that you're mentally tired at the end of the day and yeah. that that's certainly going to fi- affect your physical output as well mm-hmm. um so so yeah interesting study um you know it, it is interesting for me to kind of consider for myself too um i i, I resolved about a year ago that I was going to try and walk a lot more because I because I work on a college campus, mm-hmm. and so if it seems like there's a place where you can walk more, it would be a college campus. And so I've been parking not far away, but just not 
complaining about the fact that I didn't necessarily get to park right in front of where, right in front of the building I was going to go teach in or something like that, you know, and, and walking back and forth between my office and the building where my classroom is and where the, the school of education office is all like, like I've been sort of just walking more and making a point to do that. And I didn't consider that it might actually be having a positive effect on my training, you know, just cause I thought it was just, it was just a good thing to do. Um, but I, I didn't consider the fact that it might be keeping my metabolism revved, um, because I'm not sitting down. Yeah. Good to know. Very good. Uh, thanks for that, man. Yeah, so get in your steps and get it in periodically. <laughs> That's the real key right is on. get it in periodically to prevent from sitting from a long period of time. Right on. Yeah, there's more wrinkles to that study than I thought there was going to be. Um, all right, mine's a little bit shorter, um, but uh, but I do look forward to sharing it here. Um, and it's actually about cycling. Um, cycling, the classics season is wrapping up. So, so Patrick... In, in cycling, you have classic seasons, which is all these big one-day races, and, and the biggest, most important ones they call monuments. Um, and uh, the last monument was this past weekend. It was won by a guy named Jacob Fuglesong. It was going on at the same time as, uh, as uh, the London Marathon. Uh, it's called Liège-Bastogne-Liège. And any of you who are history fans, you're familiar with Liège and Bastogne because they have played major roles in World War II. But anyway, um, it goes from Liège to Bastogne, then back to Liège. But anyway... Um, um, so classic season is wrapping up, and that means that uh, basic grand tour season is going to be starting. And so in about two weeks, the Giro d'Italia, the Tour of Italy, is going to be starting. Then in July, you have the, the the Tour de France, the granddaddy of them all. And then in uh, in August and September, you have um, you have the Tour of Spain, the Volta a España. But um, anyway, it's been a good classic season. It's been exciting. Uh, Amstel Gold Race, which is a, a classic race that's held in the Netherlands, was probably one of the best cycling races like ever. Um, it was just amazingly exciting and I won't go too much into it, but except to say that there's this guy from the Netherlands named Matthew Vanderpoel, who is the truth anyway. <laughs> um, so given that I wanted to, to, to look at something or share, share a study about cycling that just came out this month in a journal called transportation research, part F traffic psychology and behavior, which seems like a weird name for a journal, but that's what it was It's a group from Australia. And they published a study called dehumanization of cyclists predicts self-reported aggressive behavior toward them, a pilot study. Um, and what they did is they administered a series of tests by which they measured what they call dehumanization. And they defined dehumanization as uh, something that refers to any situation where people are seen or treated as if they are less than fully human. And what they found was that 55% of people who are not cyclists, 55% of non-cyclists uh, rated people who ride bicycles as not completely human. So they aren't people on bicycles, they're cyclists, and they're not totally human. Um, right, like you don't see them as like a mom, parent, yeah, daughter, sister, right, etc. Exactly, right. exactly. You don't see them as, as a fellow human being. They're an they're, avatar. Right, right. Um, strikingly, 30% of cyclists also rated cyclists as less than human. Um, they also demonstrated a degree of dehumanization when it comes to, to, to looking at cyclists. So 55% of non-cyclists, 30% of cyclists. Um, now, this matters for, for I think, pretty self-evident reasons. But uh, to sum it up, the, uh, the, the, the head of the study said, quote, when you don't think that someone is fully human, it's easier to justify hatred or aggression towards them. This can set up an escalating cycle of resentment. If cyclists feel dehumanized by other road users, they may, they may be more likely to act out against motorists, feeding into a self-fulfilling prophecy that further fuels dehumanization against them. 
If we can put a human face to cyclists, we may improve attitudes and reduce aggression directed at on-road cyclists. This could result in a reduction in cyclist road trauma or an increase in public acceptance of cyclists as legitimate road users, unquote. Um, yeah, like I said, that kind of sums it up, right? Um, and, and to me, obviously, as somebody who, who no longer rides a bike on the road and somebody who... who uh, was hit by cars twice and one time very seriously. Um, uh, it's it's striking to me to consider that 55% of the non-cyclists and 30% of the cyclists that they that they tested in this uh, rated people who ride bicycles as not entirely human. Um, now it's also worth mentioning that in the same study, 17% of the people in the study said that they had used their car to deliberately block a cyclist. 11% had deliberately driven their car close to a cyclist, like uh, kind of buzzed them. Um, and 9% had used their car to cut off a cyclist. Um, and all those things happened to me back when I was out riding on the roads. Oh, so that's how you got hit is someone was just trying to cut you off and so, instead of cutting you off, ran right over you. But kind of, I mean, he, he, just, it's hard to know their he, motive, he, yeah, but yeah. it seemed like they were trying to beat you to a he, driveway. He was trying to, he was trying to beat me. Yeah. He, he was, he was basically trying to beat our, our group of three. He was trying to make the left turn before we crossed the driveway. And, and instead he just left turn directly into us. Um, so, yeah, um, what do you think about this? So this is terrifying on a number of levels. So, and here's where it really hits close to home. And this is something maybe a little uncomfortable to talk about on the podcast. But, you know, our very own Crystal Andrews was just a part of a PSA, a PSA with the Atlanta Police Department uh, where they talked about uh, road safety and, and I think additional like bike lanes. And yeah, not blocking the bike lanes. And, and not blocking the bike lanes. And if you look at the video, literally the first comment is someone saying, cyclists are rude to us, they deserve what they get. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that, but it was pretty... I, look, I see, see, and I, I don't even, I don't read the comments on on cycling articles on the Atlanta Journal and Constitution.com and that sort of thing. I don't read them because I know that's what they say. See, okay. see, And to me... That hit close to home because, I mean, I know Crystal. Mm-hmm. And to see, it, you know, it, it hits a little close to home when you see someone comment about, make yeah. a comment like that to someone you know right. or, or in a video about someone you know. Right. And that really almost put a, um, almost an image of this attitude. Like, this study is the ap- academic version of that Facebook post. Yeah. Well, they're just trying to say, hey, look out for cyclists. We're really trying to make this a bit more of a bike-friendly community. Mm-hmm. Um that kind of a thing, just a very simple PSA, and then someone just posted, "Traffic is terrible. Cyclists get what they deserve. Right? They run red lights. Right? Which I've almost never seen a cyclist actually run a red light before. I mean, that's I have, and, I, and I, I'm not okay with it. But that doesn't mean that you get to run them over with your car. Right. Well, and just because some cyclist you saw ten years ago ran a red light doesn't right. mean you can run over this cyclist. Right. Like it's yeah, it's silly on many levels. Yeah. But it, it 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 really kind of um, it's interesting because. As cycling becomes more prevalent, you wonder if they'll be targets of more and more road rage. Yeah. As traffic gets worse mm-hmm. and road rage only um, well, increases. Well, and to the degree, you know, to circle back around to the study, to the degree that the that people who are driving, even if they're cyclists themselves, and that's kind of what blows my mind more than anything in the study. That was gonna be my second point, um, yeah. Is 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 to the degree that people who are driving see cyclists, as you said, as avatars and not as people on bikes, um, then yeah, why not? You know, um, it, 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 
yeah, it's obviously very disturbing. Um, you know, and I, I, I keep referring to them as people on bikes, by the way. Um, one of the things that the study advocates, and one of the things that we talk about with our, with, uh, our students, um, my pre-service teachers that I teach at the college that are going to be going into special ed, is using what's called person-centered language. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. so that you, you acknowledge the humanity of a person, and then you acknowledge whatever the next thing is. So a person who rides a bike, a person who drives, a person in a wheelchair, a yeah. youth at risk as opposed to an at-risk youth, a child with a disability as opposed to a disabled child. Um, you accentuate their humanity by saying it first, yep. right? Um, and that's the reason why I kind of keep saying people on bikes. Um, I think words matter, and I think that that can be something, hopefully, ideally, that can maybe counteract some of this dehumanization. But other thoughts? Not too much. It, it's a little scary. You, you hope that this is a trend that can reverse itself. I hope so. And by reverse itself, I, it would obviously take a dedicated effort yeah. you know, from, from you know various yeah. nonprofits. Yeah. But um, I also wonder, tell me this too. I wonder whether... And, and I am not advocating for anybody to ride without a helmet on. But I'm wondering whether riding without a helmet and, or riding with a helmet and sunglasses accentuates and that. And a kid, 100%. So I can tell you... You know what I'm saying? Like, I can tell you the, the, another example of this is the NFL. Mm-hmm. You yeah. don't see their faces. Right. So one of the big changes they've noticed is right about the time the concussion awareness started to grow, that's also the time when people started watching in HD. Mm-hmm. If you watch a game from the 70s, mm-hmm. a dude can literally break his arm and you'd have no idea. Yeah. It's all, it's the padding is, hides all the pain. You don't see them grimace. You don't see the blood. You don't see them scream. You don't hear them screaming. Right. So it's kind of, you're very much insulated from the pain that they're in. Right. But they, the NFL started even noticing, once people started buying these HDTVs, they could literally see guys get knocked out. Right. And they could almost start to see through the face mask a bit right. more. So then they had to start changing the way they shot the games. Right. But I, that was actually something I was thinking about yeah. when you were talking about how they were viewed as like cyclists and not right. as people. Because a, if you think about it, a cyclist doesn't, I don't know how to say this articulately. It doesn't look like a person. They're not yeah. upright. Yeah. They're leaned over. They're wearing clothing that we're not used to seeing anywhere else. Right. That looks silly if you're not on a bike. Right. And like the helmet makes their head shaped disproportionately. Yeah. The sunglasses covers their eyes so you can't read their facial yeah. expression. Yeah. Um, so it's an unfortunate set of circumstances. They almost look more like yeah. the Terminator more so than a person. Yeah. I mean, Lance Armstrong on his podcast has talked about how he thinks that ra- bike racing, they should not wear helmets. Um, and I totally disagree with him on that, by the way. Um, but he, he talks about it from a fan base point of view. He mm-hmm. says, if you want to grow the fan base, you have to have personalities in the sport and you're not going to have personalities in the sport when you can't really ever see them and, and see their faces and stuff. I, I, again, I totally disagree with him on that. I don't think it's worth it. <laughs> um, even though I would like to grow the fan base of cycling as well. But, um, but but I, it, I, did, I did think about that when I was thinking about this and how do you humanize people but also keep them safe. I mean, obviously, I'm not. I'm definitely not suggesting anybody go out without sunglasses and a helmet on. Um, but, but I do wonder if that contributes to this dehumanization that I think is ultimately very costly and is clearly, at least based on this study, uh, very common, even mm-hmm. among people who ride bikes. <laughs> yeah, um, that's the wild part. Yeah, I'm laughing because it's just I can't help but. Yeah. Anyway. Um, all right, Patrick. On that not so happy note, this was fun. Let's end on a happy note. Good luck at the Flying Pig this weekend. Thanks, buddy.
You'll enjoy Cincinnati if you've never been there before. It's kind right of on. an old school city. Right on. It's a bunch of like small squares that were started by the Germans in the 19th century. All right. So cool. it's it's a, it's an interesting place. Very good. I look forward to it. Then it actually runs over into Kentucky. You know, across the bridge, runs a couple miles over there, crosses on back. So that'll be good too. Um, and from everything I've read and everything I've heard, it very much leans into the pig theme. It's not the starting line and finish line. It's the starting swine and finish swine. It's not starting corrals. It's pig pens. They're not volunteers. They're grunts. It's not the kids race. It's the piglet run. So where did the the pig theme even come from? I mean, so because, because evidently Cincinnati was a big pork producer back in the day. Okay. So I don't know why. I they, know they're famous for their chili. The yeah, Cincinnati yeah. chili. And but. and and one of the platinum sponsors is is Skyline Chili, which is evidently that's like that's like the the varsity of of uh, of Cincinnati. So if there were fifty varsities in the city of Atlanta, <laughs> yes. Right on, right on. Uh, All right, everybody. We appreciate you joining us. And thank you, Patrick, for bringing it back to that happy note there. Um, We'll talk to you next time on the Most Pleasant Auction Podcast. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollander, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.